0: Hello, listeners, and thank you for listening to the NK News Podcast. This is another episode in our special summer mini series on the 13th World Festival of Youth and Students in Pyongyang in 1989, exactly 30 years ago. Next month, today's episode was recorded on Thursday, June 27th, here in Seoul, Korea. My special guest today via Skype is August Mirseth. I hope I pronounced that right a Norwegian historian. But first, an announcement. We at nknews.org rely upon paid subscriptions to keep the newsroom going, turning out leading articles on all developments in North Korea, as well as in-depth analysis of what this all means. Please consider buying a subscription. You can save $50 off your first year just by entering the code PODCAST at the checkout. Also, please share this podcast with your friends and neighbours and colleagues so that all may listen. All right, my very special guest today by Skype, August Midseth is a historian living in Oslo, Norway, where he works as a museum educator. He holds an MA in the history of East Asia from the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, often known as SOAS, where he wrote his thesis on the 13th World Festival of Youth and Students. Thanks for joining me today, August. Thank you for having me on. Did I get your surname right, Midseth? Is that right? More or less. Midseth. Midseth. How did you become interested in the festival?
1: Well, I had done one course, the uh, SOAS, with my supervisor, uh, Owen Miller. And he was. Uh, we were just discussing what I would be writing my thesis on. And I knew I wanted to write about North Korea. I wasn't really sure why, because uh, nor, or what I was going to write on. There was a lot of emphasis and a lot of people writing on the geopolitics, the nuclear issues and so on. But this festival was so... Uh, What's quite a recent event, and also something that has not received that much attention from historians. I think it did receive some attention from journalists at the mm-hmm. time, but it has yet to be really taken into a larger historical account of North Korea and the late Cold War. I think so.
0: Okay. Now you have uh, entitled your uh, MA thesis "Beyond the Politics of Revenge: Recontextualizing the Thirteenth World Festival of Youth and Students." Before I get onto the question, I should point out that listeners can find your paper on the internet at ResearchGate, and I've created a little um, URL to help them find it. They can go to tinyurl.com/augustfest. That's t-i-n-y-u-r-l dot com slash a-u-g-u-s-t-f-e-s-t. August Fest, and they can get to the, uh, the that link will take them to ResearchGate where they can download uh, and read your PDF. Uh, which is, it's an excellent thesis. I I recommend people having a look at it. I note that you cited uh, Audrey van Mausbergen's uh, paper on the rhetorical reduction of the 13th World Festival of Youth and Students. Uh, that paper was written, was, I think it was back in the early 2000s, if I remember correctly. Shout shouted me if I'm wrong. Uh, anyway, she um, utilized a critical theory to highlight how Western media reported on the festival in terms of uh, tangential and peripheral elements, as she called them, uh, and that the uh, uh, the Western media generalised the diverse features of the festival using oversimplified characters, uh, categories. Now she, if I recall correctly, she was actually there in Pyongyang in 1989 as a member of the United States delegation, wasn't she? She was there at
1: the festival, and I think the paper is actually from 1992. She is one of quite a few um, scholar journalists who have uh, actually written an account of the festival in English.
0: Yeah, I, I found so. that odd that there's, uh, there were so many people there. I mean, we'll come back to the number of how many people were there later on, but there were so many people mm. at the festival, and yet so few people afterwards uh, wrote uh, very positive accounts in English that are easy to find. I mean, really, you know, if you find an account in English, it's generally written by a journalist, and it's generally very critical or skeptical.
1: Yeah. I'm not really sure why that is. One of the reasons is, uh, the, has to do with the coverage, the media coverage that mm-hmm. it was largely, it was largely forgotten because it was overshadowed by everything going on mm. in, in China and elsewhere at least. Uh, so that is one thing that I like keep coming back to that it's, it's sort of ground out in the rest of everything that happened in 1989.
0: Now, you wrote in your own introduction uh, that, uh, and I quote, the uh, ascription of a purely authoritarian and geopolitical agency to the festival is an essentially Orientalist interpretation of North Korea. Could you explain what you mean? Why is this essentially oriental- on- Orientalist?
1: I'm not sure if I would use those words today.
0: I think uh,
1: the point I was trying to make here is that from the outside world, we only look at the, we tend to see the geopolitical issues as the, The most uh, significant ones. Mm. So perhaps, especially at the end of the Cold War, we see sort of North Korea as one piece of the puzzle. um, There is a tendency to see even things going on domestically inside North Korea, like this festival, for example. Mm. As an extension of uh, the strategic uh, goals of North Korea or the strategic or military or geopolitical policy of the country, it can be difficult for Westerners to believe that the, the country actually has a domestic life on its own mm-hmm. or um, a culture, <clears throat> in a sense, apart from the purely strategic and geopolitical issues. Yeah.
0: Now, I recently interviewed Professor Vladimir Klasny of uh, Iwa Women's University, who's also written uh, a a historical uh, article about this festival, uh, not published yet, so I've had an early draft, but he talked about food being diverted from the local population after a poor harvest and used instead to feed the visiting participants. What do you know about the cost of this festival? Do you have any any of data or rough ideas?
1: Uh, first of all, I wish uh, the professor would have published the article uh, just three four years ago. That would have made things a lot easier for me. Yeah, I, I spent quite a bit of time trying to track down economic data on how much the the festival the cost of the festival was, mm. and there was one estimate that was. Over one third of the national budget. I mm. think that was fifteen billion dollars at the time.
0: That was the national budget. The so, fifteen billion, or the fifteen billion, was only the festival. Uh, that, was, that was the third.
1: So let's say it was a fifty, fifty-five zero. Okay. Uh, billion dollars was the national budget at mm-hmm. the time. These estimates, I think, were largely based on uh, on shipping data. So you could see a lot of these. A lot of the aid was from the Soviet Union and China, in particular. Came in the form of uh, of goods. Yeah. So some of it could be estimated on the basis of the ships coming in and out of North Korea, but then again, it's uh, that doesn't really give you any very specific give you a a set of uh, economic data relating to trade. So that it, it doesn't give you the full story. So it's actually mm-hmm. very difficult to. I could I, in short, I could not find reliable economic data on the festival
0: okay i'm going to read something from your paper just about the uh, the organization or the structure of the festival most people think that it might be all just mass games in a stadium but there's so much more than that so i'll read a little bit from your paper well over 1,000 events took place each under one of the following headings sports politics arts and culture national clubs the events were allocated to one of eight festival centers in pyongyang each with its own theme these were number one peace disarmament A nuclear weapon free world, security. Number two, anti imperialist solidarity, national liberation, independence, sovereignty, and national self determination, social progress, democracy, and human dignity. Number three, non alignment. Number four, socio economic development, a new international economic order, foreign debt, disarmament for development. Number five, Protection of nature and the environment, a new international information and communication order and solution of other global problems. Number six, youth, students and children's rights as inalienable part of human rights. Number seven, women's rights. And number eight, education, the sciences, new technologies. So that's uh, that's quite a, a lot of themes there. Now, let's just talk for a moment about the irony of the first theme, uh, especially uh, a nuclear weapons-free world. So we have here North Korea in 1989 was still publicly calling for a world without nuclear weapons, even while it was actively trying to acquire nuclear weapons for itself. We now know they have them. They've tested them six times. Uh, do you find it ironic? It is, of course, ironic, and... Um... That was one of the things
1: that I I noticed. It also uh, I could, this is such a it's such a watershed moment also for North Korean strategic deliberations. I think so. It's. It's no coincidence that it, it's around this time they do start to um, think about and trying to develop <clears throat> nuclear weapons because the aid is so quickly drying up from China and the Soviet Union. So they need to uh, get into this more aggressive type of type of deterrence. But of course, it doesn't really go hand in hand with peace, disarmament, nuclear weapon-free world. Now, which was also stated as
0: uh, the yeah yeah
1: quite a it's gotten quite a prominent place in the festival as an as an ideal.
0: Right. I, I remember seeing photographs or maybe even a bit of video. Uh, there's a, a long or a number of videos on YouTube of uh, of the festival. And I, I saw international students marching down the wide boulevards of Pyongyang, holding banners, uh, calling for a world without nuclear weapons. Now, I, I should point out that uh, I have spoken to a number of people uh, in the past, uh, and asked them, you know, when do you think North Korea uh, put itself firmly on the road towards nuclear weapons? Now, uh, there's no consensus on that. Uh, some people believe that uh, right after 1953 was when North Korea decided, okay, we need to get nuclear weapons. Others have said the Cuban Missile Crisis was the uh, the, the clear sign for Kim Il Sung that the Soviets would not protect him because they couldn't protect Cuba, so he needed to get missiles for himself. Others have said. 70s, 80s, uh, but certainly by 1989, I think they were well on the way towards it, uh, to, to getting it. And you know, it was only uh, a little bit over four years later that we had the first nuclear weapons crisis when uh, when Jimmy Carter flew to uh, to Pyongyang in 1994, just before Kim Il Sung died. So I think by 89, there's a very good chance that the, they were starting to see some of the first fruits of their efforts.
1: Yeah, you're you're most certainly uh, right. I think I was more thinking about the and this was the time where it was even um becoming somewhat official or um uh, mm. people intelligence agencies, and so on. But I'm not sure when they started actually talking about this. Uh,
0: another interesting topic, of course, foreign debt. You've already mentioned the uh, application to East Germany of uh, of debt cancellation. And I was also thinking about the uh, several loans, especially to Nordic countries that were defaulted on by North Korea back in the 1970s. So I thought that's an interesting topic to choose for one of their themes too. Uh,
1: that is one very interesting thing, is the... The whole story, in fact, behind the, the diplomatic relations between North Korea and the Nordic countries, mm-hmm. because uh, it was not only debt but the North Korean uh, ambassadors and all the diplomats in the Nordic embassies in the 70s were actually uh, all expelled following a very extensive North Korean smuggling operation in the Nordics. Mm. But that's, uh, that's another story, I guess.
0: Yes, I think that's something that uh, uh former North Korean diplomat Taeong Ho wrote about uh in his memoir. Uh do you know if the issue of gay rights was discussed anywhere in uh, for example in I'm um, thinking of topic two, uh, democracy and human dignity or social progress or uh, anywhere else in the uh, in the
1: festival? I would assume that the North Koreans didn't expect that to be discussed, and I haven't found specific examples referring to uh gay or LGBT matters uh, but i do know that there have been um specifically there was uh, support for amnesty international so there could be something there but i haven't uh i haven't seen that much
0: uh, yeah, uh, let's talk about Amnesty International. You wrote in your paper about some disruptions that occurred during the opening ceremony involving specifically Nord- Nordic students uh, and access to Amnesty International. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Well, as far as I, I gathered, there was a, was a Nordic delegation. They consisted of uh, a few Norwegians, a few Finns, and Swedes, I think. And they also had a few Italians joining them in mm-hmm. a protest on behalf of Amnesty International. Essentially, to uh, to smuggle in into the stadium, not just to the country, but into the stadium, they smuggled Amnesty International t-shirts mm. and banners. Just when the festival, I think it was actually during the opening ceremony, they took off their uh, their their jumpers and they all uh, so they were all sporting these <coughs> Amnesty International t-shirts and they uh, got up the banners and so on. Uh, some accounts say that uh, Kim Il Sung left left the stadium. When he saw the disruption that broke out, so he what, did not want to be there at the time.
0: What was the issue exactly? Why was Amnesty International not there? It was a demonstration against the regime, so it was a um,
1: it was a human rights campaign mm-hmm. essentially. I think we should um, we should also remember that there was despite being a largely um, socialist or left wing tradition, this mm. these world festivals. Uh there were also people from other parties. You even had certain conservatives I know from the Norwegian delegation. There were different type of political youth parties that was represented mm. uh in the Nordic delegation. They were all in on the uh amnesty um uh, scandal, if we can call it that. I could, I don't know if there were any accounts of this in North Korean media after, probably mm-hmm. not, but I was told that the closing ceremony, the, the delegation with the amnesty t-shirts, they were placed uh, just right in the middle of a very enthusiastic uh-huh. North Korean crowd. Right. Uh, sort of keep them at bay.
0: Now, in your thesis, you look at the festival from four different uh, theoretical perspectives. Let's uh, talk about them uh, briefly, one by one. The first one you've got is the theory of sports and mass spectacle. What's that all about? What's the theory? Some some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with the idea that there is a theory of sports. I was, to be honest,
1: also unfamiliar with uh, any theory of sports before I started doing this. Okay. That goes um, back to something I mentioned earlier, that sports... Mega events like yeah. these, uh, and like the Olympics, they also serve a political purpose hmm. so and we have countless examples of this in the Olim- in the Olympic history, hmm. so for example, you know the story of all the boycotts uh, of Moscow, the um, <clears throat> shootings in the Munich Olympics like uh, there's a lot of politics intertwined with the Olympics that is always a feature of these uh, big uh, big sports events, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's also to, it gives particular countries a chance to show off their wealth or their uh, or their athletic prowess and so on. Uh, as was the case for for South Korea in 1988, when they were able to uh, like really show off their uh, technological mm. supremacy uh, for the first time. Uh, but the theories of sports, I'm no expert still on the theories of sports, uh, but it does relate to the purpose of sports besides just the a lot of people running around on a field, for example, the political or social purposes of sports. That's what the theories of sports set out to uh, discuss. All right,
0: let's talk about uh, mass spectacle. Uh, so-called sled—that's a word that I used, uh, that I learned from reading your thesis. What is so-called sled? And where did it come from?
1: Uh, well, I found it very interesting to learn about these things because I had never heard about it either. Uh, so I started to look at the, not just the festival, but the North Korean mass games tradition uh, in general. And it sort of it went back to, to another Soviet tradition, uh, which stems from the Czech tradition of Sokol. And Sokol is actually a, uh, it is a sport that is performed uh, by groups and it is still an active sport so i think it originated in prague in the czech republic in the 1860s mm. uh, as sort of a community-based gymnastics mm-hmm. so a way to for communities to get together and uh, just have a nice uh, athletic time i think that was the um, the purpose and then the soviet union would later adopt this because it was suitable for a uh, because it was community-based, mm. so it was intended for many people to to do it together, and it was also very suitable for uh, display. So it could be used for festivals or uh, in relation to uh, to military parades and so on. So it is a display of um, coordination. It could be a display of of strength and so on.
0: What about the uh, sort of the flip books? You know, where every uh, human holds a book. Uh... That and you know, when they open it to a page, uh, they become one pixel in a giant living screen that, you know, forms a giant mosaic. The the giant human mosaics. Mm-hmm. So is that also part of circle? I don't think that's part
1: of circle. Sokol is more about the athletic displays mm. and less about, somewhat less about the sort of a- aesthetic or a, this is a form of art or perform- we could call it performance art, I guess. So I don't think so. Okay. I might be wrong.
0: And what about the word slet, yeah. S-L-E-T, is that also... Uh... Uh, yes, so sokol is the sport
1: and then slet is the festival. So slet is these, um, a slet, it's where these uh, groups of athletes Come together and perform the mass athletics. So, ah, okay. So that's, that's the name is of the, the event.
0: event. And sport? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and can we see that, or can we see the uh, the 1989 festival, perhaps as a, a forerunner or a precedent for the Arirang Mass Games that started in the early 2000s?
1: Most certainly, you can. And if you were to compare video footage, I think you would see a lot of mm-hmm. uh, a lot of similarities. I haven't been able to obtain that much. Footage, so I actually haven't seen many of the uh, the uh, events from this festival. But I think it, we can definitely assume that some of the Aaron mass games sort of originates in the in this festival.
0: Now, you, you also found something interesting about Shinto religion and uh, uh, you know during uh, Japan's colonization of Korea. Uh, what was that all about?
1: During the Japanese period, the Korean Japanese period from 1910 to 45. The Japanese government had different ways of trying to um, subjugate or assimilate the the Korean population into a more Japanese way of life. Sure. So a form of imperialism. And one of these was that they used, perhaps especially in Korea, occupation. And one of these was... Was uh, what they call the Shinto Shinto festivals. Mm-hmm. So Shinto is, um, as the listeners um, might know, is the state religion or was the uh, state religion in Japan. Uh, and an important feature of Shinto is uh, emperor worship. <clears throat> and this idea of Shinto and Shinto festivals was taken to Korea and was really promoted in Korea by the Japanese. If we can. Look at the, these Shinto festivals as a uh, forerunner for what would eventually become North Korean. Mass displays.
0: What specific activities or or, uh, or, or themes or um, parts of the Shinto festival can you point to that have been p- perhaps folded into or borrowed into uh, you know North Korea's mass displays?
1: It has um, many similarities. So there was one author that uh, characterizes the Shinto festivals as a coupling of prayer and play. So mm-hmm. you sort of have uh, the political or even semi-religious activities on one side, and then you have play. On the other side, so yeah, the spiritual side, or even spiritual or political side, and then athletic side to these festivals. Mm-hmm. So you had, for example, in the Shinto festivals that the Japanese government promoted in the twenties, you had uh, sumo wrestling was one thing. You had uh, Japanese comedy shows were put on, and also other type of um, athletics that might be more reminiscent of um, of what we consider to be typical of North Korean mass displays today, mm. and also um, religious rituals as well.
0: And, and you're saying that uh, in the North Korean mass spectacles, the, the praise of the leader is, is the stand-in for the Japanese gods?
1: Yes. I mean, it is a bit of a leap to make that claim, uh, but it is at least interesting to see how uh, how they go hand-in-hand, hand because the... The emperor worship was such an such a key feature of the um, the Shinto festivals, is the uh, what we could call today's emperor worship in North Korea is such an important feature of the mass games of today. So in the paper, I do trace um, the more uh, authoritarian features of the North Korean festival culture back to the Japanese period.
0: Mm. Now, the uh, second theme that you looked at is the historical origins of the World Festival of Youth and Students. Uh, I talked quite a bit about that with uh, Vladimir Hlasny, Hlasny in my recent interview with him, but how would you summarize uh, the okay. movement? The
1: movement started after the Second World War. It was not started as a response the Olympics. It was a Soviet tradition in its own right. It was uh, it was organized by this conglomerate of different left-wing student organizations yeah. if I remember correctly. And this was, the one in Pyongyang was the 13th, and uh, before there had been uh, these uh, world festivals of youth and students in all sorts of different East Bloc countries like Cuba. Mm-hmm. And I think the first one was actually in Prague, mm-hmm. so that uh, takes it back to the origins of the so-called tradition again, because right. uh, Prague is indeed where the so-called tradition comes from.
0: You point out in your paper that there was this kind of a, a difficult balance between the intentions of the North Korean government on the one hand, and the intentions of the World Festival of Youth and Students, uh, you know, the, the, nas- the International Union of Students movement on the other hand, that it, it wasn't simply a, a North Korean political display precisely because it was tied to this international movement and that's why there were there were sort of two intentions that had to be or two wills that had to be held in balance together
1: yes and i think we can see this in uh, this is expressed in <clears throat> in different ways and i think that's also one of the things that makes this uh, festival Different than the more recent mass games,
0: precisely because yeah. the North Korean government's always used to doing things, you know, by itself, where it's the it's the prime mover, it's the only agent. And this this time, it was uh, although it was the host, uh, it had to work in cooperation, in tandem with this international organization. That couldn't have been easy for both sides.
1: No, probably not. I think the if I was to uh, to make an assumption, I would probably think that the North Korean government uh, expected it to be, to have more uh, staunch allies in the, what I refer to as the global young left. uh, It's a very broad term, like the international uh, activist left left wing movement or movements. Maybe it might be that during the, the process of arranging this festival, uh, the North Koreans became a bit disappointed with the lack of enthusiasm for their own regime. Maybe they expected to find more enthusiasm for uh, what was, in a sense, still a socialist. So, in fact, yes. let,
0: let's use that as a springboard to talk about the geopolitical situation. Was North Korea becoming more isolated around this time? It was
1: definitely becoming um, more isolated, or it was uh, it was already. Isolated in a sense. But I think it was not just the isolation, it was the estrangement from China and the Soviet Union in financial terms. And also, uh, they were, it was another very uh, difficult development for the North Koreans at the time was that the South Koreans were really moving forward with their, uh, their trust to uh, link former North Korean allies and East Bloc countries to them. So, mm. you have a uh, President-Rose and uh, nor- north- Northern Policies, Northern policy. how do you? Nord-Politik. politik yeah. So that probably is just as much of a headache for the uh, North Koreans at the time that the South Korean government very successfully reaches out to East Bloc countries. So that's uh, uh, in this period. So that must have been a um, difficult development for the North Koreans to be looking at at the time.
0: Right, I think you mentioned in your paper that it was only a month or two after the end of the festival that the, uh, the Soviet Union uh, made a decision to, uh, to get closer to South Korea in, in diplomatic relations, didn't it? Yes,
1: so that's one other thing that makes this, um, this festival such a perfect storm, in a sense, uh, because you have the Soviet Union... Of uh, um, reestablishing ties with South Korea, mm-hmm. you have um, the uprisings in Beijing at the same time, and then after a few short months, the Soviet and China, Soviet Union and China, they cut off most of the aid that was, by some estimates, I think up to seventy percent of the national budget. Uh, at the same time, you have the enormous costs of the festival. And in during this whole period, you have the South Koreans successfully reaching out to. I think they start with Hungary, and they the North Koreans feel uh, you know take offense on on from the fact that uh, the East Bloc countries that has formerly enjoyed very close good relations with North Korea, or in relative terms, uh, that they are now turning to South
0: Korea, this
1: new uh, economic powerhouse, instead.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the, uh, the also the Tiananmen Square uh, incident. And uh, what was North Korea's official response? I know that initially there was a complete uh, blackout of any news coverage about the events of uh, Tiananmen Square, which was only about four weeks before the festival. Uh, we heard in uh, our interview last week with uh, Monique Macias that uh, there were some rumors, you know, some news was filtering in through some of the students. So when the North Korean government eventually made a response to the Tiananmen Square massacre, what was it? Well,
1: first of all, I think they made the Rodong Shinmun made the announcement of the uprisings in Beijing on the opening on the opening day of the festival. Wow! So that suggests that they weren't really that interested in uh, Koreans to hear about the Beijing protests at all. Uh, but it was announced. And that was, as you point out, only four weeks after the uh, the Tiananmen Square uprisings had taken place. They, their approach is, I, I think, they're, it's difficult for them to choose sides in the beginning because they're not they're not really sure where this is, where the um, Tiananmen Square protests or are, are, uh, which direction they are heading. But yeah. This is quite about the time of the opening of the festival, so the. Uh, North Korean government, they take, uh, clearly take sides with uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party.
0: Let's talk about the domestic situation in North Korea. Were there internal challenges to Kim Il-sung's legitimacy at the time? I wouldn't go as
1: far as to say there was uh, challenges. or There was challenges to the legitimacy, but probably not uh, any serious challenge to the hmm. throne at this time. Uh, but I think that... Um, Kim Jong Il was still in in the process of uh, consolidating his uh, standing and his reputation. By the time the festival came around in 1981, I think that his position was uh, was quite secure. Uh, but it was uh, there were still these um, these so-called second-in-command[s] earlier in the 1980s that may or may not have posed a threat, like Hoo uh, chin U for example, is one, mm-hmm. but most of these, they die in the course of the 1980s. So by the time the festival comes around, mm-hmm. uh, his position is probably secure yeah. from uh, any serious internal opposition within the party, but still he, uh, he has a way to go with uh, the North Korean people. And as you um, are aware, this was the first ever dynastic succession in the communist world, so yeah. it was controversial, not just um, in Korea but also also in the rest of the the East Bloc. This was very uh, unusual, an right. unusual move.
0: But what else was happening in North Korea at the time that we know about? Well, the there
1: was an attempt, somewhat successful attempt to involve the entire population in. Um, in these festivities, festivities, because they were they were of course uh, meant to be also a display for the North Korean population, uh, but they were going to be take a lot of manpower. So uh, what the regime did was to initiate these um, what they called a uh, 200 day battle, mm. which was essentially a word for a uh, glorified uh, term for a uh, Uh, somewhat forced labor at least. The borderline between voluntary and forced labor. Uh, So it was this 200-day battle was essentially um, 200 days of labor that was imposed on the North Korean population uh, where the purpose was to build uh, all sorts of things in the lead-up to the festival. So it was uh, bridges and railroads and it was um, stadium. uh, Stadiums and uh, other facilities, because there were there were a lot of things, just material things, um, as well as hotels, hotel rooms, accommodation. Yeah, just a lot of things needed to be. Yeah, exactly. So there was a lot of things that needed to be put in place if the festival was going to be a success. Hmm. And North Korea had a tradition for this already, to sort of uh, get together, volunteer. Yeah, so they had a tradition for getting the whole population together and working towards a common goal, uh, voluntary or not voluntary. Yeah, about these uh, these, 200-day
0: campaigns. mm. Have you ever read uh, the book by Andrew Holloway? Uh, It's never been published in print form, but you can find it on the website of Aidan Foster Carter. Uh, Andrew Holloway was an Englishman who worked in Pyongyang uh, in 1988 for one year as a... um, uh, as an editor of translations of Kim il song's works in English. Uh, and he specifically talks about the 200-day campaign that he saw uh, that took place in 1988 when they were still building many of those facilities. And he writes actually quite at length about uh, watching the people uh, working seven days a week. And uh, often, you know, you would find uh, 20 or, or 30 or 50 people um, on a work site, doing something you know very, very slowly by manual labor that could be done by a machine in a couple of hours, and you know the, often you would have fifty people but only one hammer, that kind of a thing and so a lot of the a lot of the time he said people were just sitting around waiting with nothing to do uh, no, I'm not familiar
1: with that book, uh, but it sounds much like the the accounts that I have uh, come across.
0: Yeah, it's well worth reading. Anyone can find it on the uh, the website of Aidan Foster Carter. Just look for uh, A Year in Pyongyang by uh, Andrew Holloway, uh, completely free, and that's at uh, aidanfc.net, aidanfc.net, uh, A Year in Pyongyang. A remarkable book, and it, it sounds like something, you know, he was quite worried or concerned watching his, uh, friends and colleagues go through this 200-day campaign, and he said that after the end of the of the one campaign, maybe a month or two later, they started a second campaign. So there's been more of, more than one of these uh, 200-day campaigns over the course of the the period leading up to the festival.
1: Yeah, we can ask ourselves if the purpose of uh, these 200-day battles is indeed to build things mm. in an efficient manner to get them built, or if the purpose uh, is the work itself. Because, as you mentioned, it was sometimes very inefficient. Yeah, uh, that could have something to do with uh, with uh, access to heavy machinery, of course, but it could also be just the, the fact that the the labour was the, the purpose uh, in and of itself sometimes.
0: Let's talk uh, briefly about the North Korea, oh, Sorry, the Norwegian delegation to the festival. How big was it? I think
1: they were around 30 people. Mm-hmm. That is my that is my estimate based on what I've uh, been able to gather. Uh, they have, they were a group or a delegation with some political diversity. Mm-hmm. So I know, in fact, I met just a couple of weeks ago, I met one of the um, participants. Mm-hmm. And she was uh, not from a socialist youth party at all, but she was from a um, liberal conservative party, in fact.
0: Ah, oh, interesting.
1: Uh, so she was one of the one of those who brought in uh, amnesty t-shirts. Ah. and banners. Um, the the Norwegian name of this particular party is Left, although it is a conservative, belongs to the conservative bloc. So maybe that caused some confusion.
0: That's fascinating.
1: Uh, I'm not sure, <clears throat> but um, they were around thirty people, and they were in this in this. Uh, delegation in a nordic delegation with mostly swedes and Finns, and the italians as far as i can remember joined them for the uh amnesty protests okay. and when i met this participant just a couple of weeks ago they were actually uh just gonna, they were just meeting that week to uh to sort of mark mark the 30th anniversary of the festival actually so they still keep in touch as a as a group. So, so they had a does.
0: reunion of, of all the or some of the the members.
1: Exactly. <clears> throat>
0: they throat> had a reunion
1: of uh, most most of them actually.
0: That's fascinating. What prompted them to do mm-hmm. that? Well, I think
1: as your Swedish guest on the yeah, podcast. That's right, Tobias. Uh, that, to... mm-hmm. I think it's just a uh, it's a fun thing to have been a part of. It's mm-hmm. it's sort of it's absurd. So it's probably an, a nice thing to uh to get together and, and uh, reminisce about, I think that's the, the simple answer. That because it was, I mean, they they're well aware of the absurdity of the situation. And as far as I gathered, they also they went there primarily for the for the protest, I think, uh-huh. uh, but also for the curiosity.
0: Have you met anyone the, who was there in 1989 and, and who has since then revisited North Korea?
1: I have not. She is actually the only person that I have met, I think, as, as I know, that I've been, there was at the present at the festival. Uh, and she has not been back. No, he has not. She didn't seem particularly keen to go back
0: either. Alright, so in conclusion, um, was the 1989 13th World Festival of Youth and Students just an absurd spectacle? I, I, I use the word absurd because we just talked about that uh, in the reunion of the Norwegian delegation. So was it, you know, can... Can it be reduced to an absurd spectacle? Yes and no.
1: It was indeed an absurd one-week-long spectacle, but it is a bit—it is a bit more complex, I think. If we were to sum up three main purposes of the festival from the point of the uh, point of view of the North Korean government, it would be first of all as a response to the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, uh, which was of course uh, an extremely successful Olympics uh, and really showcased the. Um, South Korean uh, economic progress. Yeah, that's not one. Uh, second, I think the purpose was the um, consolidation of Kim Jong Il's legitimacy. Um, so that was probably is probably another factor that we also uh, should not overlook. Uh, but on the other hand, this festival is particular because it is a continuation of a an older Soviet and um, East Bloc tradition. So it is it's not simply a, a contained festival or a contained domestic uh, phenomenon in North Korea exactly for the reasons that we talked about earlier because it was uh, arranged together with the International uh, Union of Students uh, because this was based on an older Soviet tradition. So if you if you even go back and look at the different countries to host these youth games before, it is a lot of different East Bloc countries have arranged them earlier. So it, it, even apart from the, the reasons where they've stated now, it couldn't, it, it would probably, it was probably a natural, natural that it was the North Koreans' turn to arrange these festivals. In fact, it's a part of a longer historical tradition. So not a, for the moment, um, ad hoc revenge Olympics. That's not its only purpose.
0: Right. It's certainly a very interesting one. And I do recommend that people uh, go and have a look at your uh, your paper on the Internet. Uh, once again, at uh, com slash augustfest. That's august plus F-U- f-e-s-t, written as one word. Uh, uh, very nice. Thank you very much. Are you on Twitter or other social media? I am, in fact, uh, not one of the
1: lucky few. So I'm afraid uh, you can always uh, send me an email. They can reach me on August, maybe you'll find my uh, spelling of my name in the show notes or something, uh, at hotmail.com.
0: Okay. And what are you researching
1: these days? Uh, I'm not really researching much these days. I work in um, an Oslo museum. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's um, in part a historical museum. So, I get the chance to talk to uh, visitor groups and so on and develop uh, exhibitions about uh, all sorts of more recent international history
0: okay well i do appreciate you for your time you've been very generous with your time today august so thank you uh, so much and uh, thank you very much for, uh, for having me not at all and don't forget uh, listeners to uh, share this podcast with your friends and uh, colleagues and our thanks go as always to post-production editor Arias dare for cutting out all the noises and silences and to james fretwell who has taken over from christina lee in facilitating with this podcast thanks for listening and check us again next time The costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Career Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.